Nivash Kanazi, uh, welcome to All Classical Portland uh, for this conversation about your new recording, Violins of Hope. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Niv, this is my first time talking to you and introducing you to our listeners here at All Classical Portland. And I wonder if uh, you wouldn't mind talking about yourself for a few minutes. Um, just uh, give us a chance to get to know you a little bit better uh, about uh, where you're from and uh, when you started playing violin. Yeah, so uh, my parents are both Israeli, but I was born and raised out here in California. And uh, I began playing the violin at age six, but I really actually fell in love with it at the age of two and a half when we were visiting Israel and there was a busker on a street corner and my parents stopped um, to let me listen and they thought that we would leave after a couple seconds, but I didn't want to leave and then I kept asking for a violin and eventually I started at the age of six and uh, yeah, then I ended up attending Juilliard in New York for my undergrad and master's, and then returning back to sunny California. <laughs> That's great. That might be the first time I've heard a violinist tell me that he uh, got his inspiration from a busker. Yeah, I think that um, I know a few friends that have similar stories to that, and that was actually... Uh, I think it's a good way of being introduced to an instrument in a casual um, way, basically. Niv, is this your debut recording, this recording on Albany? Yes, this is my debut recording, and I'm so excited to be working with Albany on this, to be working with the wonderful Matthew Graybill on this, um, and to get to have recorded this at the Soraya. The Soraya is here also in Northridge, and their beautiful hall was made by the same acoustician as Disney Hall, and so the sound in there is phenomenal. Oh, it's great. Well, now Violins of Hope um, is really uh, an extraordinary and important project. And uh, how did it feel with this being your debut recording, taking on um, all this, uh, all the history that comes with it and, and the, the physicality of it too, holding these violins from the Holocaust? You know, it was... This was a project that was years in the making. I've been working with them for three years now and have had this violin for three years now. And I'd known for a while that I wanted to make this recording. Um, of course, given the subject and what we were going after, it had to be very specifically done in a way that made sense for the project, made sense musically, and that, you know, that we felt comfortable in representing um, these instruments and the history behind them. These violins understandably went through a lot, as did their owners, and um, I understand that they had to go through a period of uh, restoration, right? Yes, so the Violins of Hope, it's both an organization and a collection of instruments, and they're all from during the Holocaust, affected in some way, and they're all restored by Amnon Weinstein and his son, Avshalom Weinstein. And Amnon is the one that founded Violins of Hope. It started with his grandfather, who, um, when the war ended, he had a violin shop in Tel Aviv, the same one that's still there, and he had musicians come to him and tell him that they wanted to get rid of their instruments because they reminded them 
of the awful times during the Holocaust. And they said, basically, if you don't buy this instrument, we're going to destroy it. We'll burn it, break it, do whatever it takes. And he bought up every single instrument, knowing that he would never be able to sell them again. And eventually, Amnon decided to start restoring these instruments. And this is one of the ways for him that he's working through the family trauma of the Holocaust that they had. They lost over 400 members of their family to the Holocaust. Oh my gosh. Wasn't there a television documentary or film documentary about this too? Yes, there is the PBS documentary um, about Violence of Hope is probably the most well-known one. There are a few others that have come out. And there's also a fantastic book called Violence of Hope by James A. Grimes. And it tells the story of about six of these instruments that they have that are really, really well documented. What I seem to recall from the visuals in the the trailer or the preview for that was that they showed some of the instruments and they, I mean, the one on the cover has a star of David. Is that an actual violin? That's not just an artistic mock-up, right? That's an actual violin. A lot of them have Stars of David on them. Um, Mine, the one on the instrument that I have, is made out of abalone shell, and a lot of them were, but some of them it's uh, wood or different other techniques that they used. And though it seems kind of strange to us nowadays because we don't see decorations on instruments, at the time that was actually fairly common. So a lot of the time the rabbi would choose the person with the most stars of David on their violin to play the wedding. So it was actually a marketing uh, ploy for a lot of the musicians. But the violin that I have uh, that one would have gone to a professional musician or a wealthy family because it's it's of professional grade and one of the highest quality of that time. They don't know much about it, but they know that it was probably made in Yugoslavia um, around the early 1900s. And uh, the most interesting part about the violin to me is that they see that the back is lighter than the front. And one of the reasons for this, or actually the reason for this, is that in Orthodox Jewish tradition, you aren't allowed to have representative artwork on the wall. So instead, they would hang up violins with the Star of David facing out. So the sun would come through the window and hit the back of the violin, and it would eventually bleach the violin. And so that's something they had read about in the history books, but they didn't really know whether it was true or not until they saw it on these physical instruments. Oh, that's extraordinary. (laughs) 
as I said, these violins went through a lot. Did they also suffer damage or, or vandalism during that time? Absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of these instruments were played under very tough conditions that we would normally never want to be playing instruments, whether it's out in the rain or in the snow or just generally outside. Some of them, in order to have them saved, were even buried and later taken back out of the ground, um, of course, covered up and with, with good care. But these instruments, for a lot of people, they kept them alive. Uh, but they didn't get to choose under what circumstances they were played on. So a lot of them come with a lot of damage to be restored. And Amnon and Avshi, what they do is they bring them to exactly where they were pre-damage. They don't improve. They don't do anything less. They bring them back. But there's certain instruments that they'll never restore. There's one instrument that has a swastika engraved into, the, uh, into it. And the violin was taken into a shop for a routine repair. And basically the repair person, all they did was open up the violin. They uh, etched in the swastika and then closed it back up and claimed that they had done the work. But they could see as luthiers, no work was done. So for an instrument like this, which shows the hate, um, it this instrument is not going to be restored. And this is an instrument that they do bring with them and show people, but they show it taken apart. Mm. It's more of a historical document. and mm-hmm. Exactly. But the idea is to resurrect these voices. These were voices that were silenced, um, whether it's their owners or the instruments. And so the idea is to bring back these voices and bring them back to life. a number of composers who each have a different story. Yeah, yeah. So the idea was for the album to represent the life of this violin. And so all the pieces are within the lifetime of this violin, and most of the composers were affected in some way by the Holocaust. So, for example, the first piece on the album, which is Robert Dauber's Serenade, he died at the age of 23 in a concentration camp. And he was the son of a very famous jazz violinist and band leader, and you can hear bits of that in that piece. But uh, the serenade, that's the only surviving work by him, and he wrote that in Terrazin.
have some other composers like Julius Hayes, who fled Europe in the early 1930s and went to what was then Palestine and later became Israel. And uh, he was there for a few years before he moved to the United States and lived the rest of his life out in Detroit. But he always wrote Jewish music and was very inspired by his time in Israel. So we have a variety of these. There's also there's also Simon Lacks. He was the concertmaster of the men's orchestra at Auschwitz-Birkenau, and he was a composer before and after the war, and a lot of people gave up on music after the war. But he continued, and uh, the piece that I, that I recorded was actually a version for violin and piano that was reconstructed by the violinist Judith Ingolfson because he wrote the same thing for cello and piano, but the violin and piano version has been lost, so she actually reconstructed it. Yeah, it's beautiful music, and there's there's a lot of variety uh, in the in the selections too. Um, there are pieces with a, a great deal of of character, and um, and even some some humor. I mean, I'm I'm certainly picking up in in one of the pieces a kind of Stravinskyan uh, you know modernism uh, in them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. They. We wanted to find a wide range of music to represent this. Um, and there's a lot of really great music out there. Uh, all of these pieces were had been recorded in one way or another beforehand, but there's also pieces uh, out there that have yet to be recorded that are really great. But we were able, so my wife is was the producer for this project, and so we worked closely together for uh, picking the repertoire. And... Yeah, the idea was we didn't want it to just be a depressing CD. We wanted it to show a variety of what was uh, being written um, and just to involve all the different emotions that surround this project. Yeah, because there's also a a story of incredible um, of survival, of the will to live through these pieces and through these, these composers. Absolutely. And one of the pieces that, this is the only piece that we commissioned actually by Sharon Farber, Um, we wanted to represent the future of classical music because we had all these wonderful pieces, but we wanted to show where might we go from here. And Sharon Farber, both in her career and the way she writes, she felt like the right fit for that. So she ended up making um, making a special arrangement for us of her cello concerto with narrator, and she arranged it for violin, forehand, piano, and narrator. And it tells the story of Kurt Lowens, who was a survivor and hero of the Dutch Resistance, and he um, was actually there when they were arresting some of the top officials in the Nazi party. He was there as a translator. And so this piece was a very special piece to have on this album. And she actually was the other pianist that played it, other than uh, Matthew Graybill, who was the pianist for the entire album. And he's such a beautiful and sensitive player that I'm thrilled that we were able to work together on this. We had to fly him in from New York, but it was wonderful working with him. And then we also have um, the the actor Tony Campisi doing the narration, and so it's a very very special piece and quite different from all the other pieces on the album. Like shadows, they emerge from the foggy dawn, 
and I wonder, how will we carry on? Niv, I have to ask you what, you've been doing this for a few years now, and so you've had these instruments uh, in your hands a number of times, but how did it feel or how does it feel when you take up one of these violins in, in your hands and prepare to play a piece? You know, it's always an emotional experience. A lot of the times you know something, at least, of the owner and the background, um, and it adds a whole other layer. And a lot of the times when we're presenting these instruments, especially when it's part of the bigger events, so I have one of the instruments on long-term loan, but I'm the only one that, that does have that. So for all the other events, musicians usually only have about five, ten minutes to get used to an instrument before going on stage. And a lot of the time, a story is told about that instrument. So you feel a very deep connection to the instrument, to the owner, and to what they had gone through. And it, it changes how you play. So for me, I always try to put myself aside when it comes to these instruments and just let the voice of each instrument come through and carry. Because each one of these voices is so unique and so beautiful and has its own story that it needs to tell. On this recording, do you play more than one instrument? Am I correct about that? Uh, no, I only play the one that I have on long-term loan. Um, that was for various reasons. Um, one of them was we wanted to capture the voice of this particular violin. But, you know, on the other hand, there's also logistical reasons because to get these instruments when they're on tour all over the world, to get several of them in one place for a given time and with enough time to uh, work on them and get to know them, um, it just wouldn't have been possible. But this album originally from the get-go was intended to be a record of this voice so that this one voice for sure will never be silenced again. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Niv Ashkenazi, thank you so much for your time today to talk about Violins of Hope and the beautiful music that's on it, music that will never be silenced again. Uh, it's been, been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for sharing this album. It really means a lot to me. <laughs> ¶¶